Okay, so today we'll uh, take a look at chapter 21. So again, Moses is uh, applying the Ten Commandments to different uh, situations. And in this uh, chapter, we see uh, at least four commandments being applied in five different settings. So the first one is uh, how to atone for blood, uh, which is shed uh, in the land uh, in the case where the murderer is not known or they're not sure who has committed the murder, but the blood has been shed in the land and how to atone for it. So we read that in verses one through nine. And the second uh, thing from verses 10 to 14, we see uh, some guidelines uh, to treat a woman uh, who has been captured uh, in war. And if someone desires her, what are some guidelines to be followed? And verse 15 to 17, we see uh, if there is polygamy, uh, how does it impact uh, the firstborn son? Uh, if the father continues to have children, uh, from the subsequent marriage. And in verses uh, 18 through 21, we see how to respond uh, to a son who's living in disobedience and unwilling to listen to the parents. And lastly, in verses 22 to 23, we see uh, the significance uh, of a criminal uh, who is hung on a tree and how it relates to Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll start with verses uh, 1 through 9. Uh, it speaks about how to atone for unsolved murder or how to atone for the blood uh, that is shed in the land or why it needs to be done based on what we have already studied uh, in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Okay, so in this case, the first verse uh, sets a stage for everything else that follows. So we read in the first verse that there is someone who's lying in the field and obviously uh, he has been murdered but they don't know who the murderer is. But uh, we see in subsequent verses that uh, instructions are given how to deal with that situation. So in many cases, uh, we may not really bother to find out who the murderer is. But in this case, uh, we see uh, that God cares about the person who died. And more importantly, because the blood that is shed uh, pollutes the land. And when we reach uh, verse 9, we see that the solution has been reached and they're able to put away the guilt of innocent blood. So in chapter 19, we saw, uh, again, we talked about murder, but in that case, the murderer was known. Uh, either it was an intentional murder, in which case uh, he was stoned to death. And if it was accidental murder, then we saw that they were able to run to a city of refuge uh, so that they could uh, be protected uh, from the anger of their next of kin or those who wanted to take revenge. So chapter 21 also deals with murder, but in this case, the murderer is not known. And the verses talk about how to atone for the blood uh, that was shed in the land and which has polluted the land, which means uh, it will make uh, the people who are in that land uh, guilty of that blood. So we read in Numbers uh, 35, 33, uh, ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. So here we see that uh, when blood is shed, uh, it defiles or pollutes the land. And the only way to cleanse the land would be through blood of the one who committed the crime. And that is what we saw in chapter 9, that the land was cleansed uh, by the blood of the murderer. But in this case, uh, the murderer is not known or it has not been resolved yet. 
So an alternate uh, solution is given uh, so that the uh, so that the land could be cleansed of that flood. So in verse two, we read that the responsibility is given to the elders and the priests uh, who are closest to the city or closest to where the victim is. So that is done for practical reasons, uh, for convenience. And as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, the priests uh, also act as a judge uh, in settling uh, cases. So in this case, again, we see that the responsibility uh, is given to them. And the alternate solution that we see here that we read in verses three to uh, nine is that an heifer, which is a young calf, which has not been used in the land, uh, it is brought to the uh, uncultivated land uh, in the valley and the neck uh, is broken and the elders, they wash their hands uh, over the uh, heifer whose neck was broken. So that's the uh, ritual or that is the uh, solution that is offered where you bring a young calf and you break the neck and the elders, they would wash their hands uh, over that heifer. So we can see what the washing of hands uh, signifies. So in the scriptures, we see that the washing of hands uh, symbolizes uh, innocence as uh, we read in Psalm 26, 6. I will wash my hands in innocency, uh, so will I compass thine altar, uh, O Lord. And in Matthew 27, 24, which is a famous verse, where when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, uh, he took water and washed his hands uh, before the multitude, saying, I am innocent uh, of the blood of this just person. So when we read uh, in verse six that the elders are washing their hands, uh, it again uh, symbolizes that they are innocent uh, of the crime uh, that was committed. And obviously they are speaking for the uh, entire community, uh, not just for themselves. And we also read uh, in verses seven and eight that the washing of hands is accompanied by prayer. So there is a confession where they are saying our hands have not shed blood neither have they been a witness. So if they are a witness to the crime, and if they don't come forward and tell who the criminal is, then that itself would also be a crime because they would be a false witness. So here they are confessing that they haven't committed the crime and they haven't seen the criminal. And they are asking the Lord to have mercy and to forgive uh, Israel uh, of the shed blood. So even though uh, one person might have committed the crime, uh, we see that the uh, punishment uh, is spread to the entire community. So the, they are taking it upon themselves to make that sacrifice and to make that prayer so that they can be forgiven. And we read the result uh, of the prayer in verses 8 and 9. Uh, the community uh, is forgiven uh, of the crime that was committed and the guilt of the blood that was shed uh, in the land uh, is taken away. And the murderer uh, is still guilty of murder. So just because the sacrifice was made uh, does not mean that the murderer is not guilty of murder. Uh, he would still remain guilty of murder. And in case uh, he is found later at some other point, uh, he will be killed uh, despite the sacrifice that was made uh, of the calf. And of course, uh, in the Bible, we know that one day uh, all mysteries uh, will be solved. 
So even though we are saying it's an unsolved murder, but the, a day will come when all the crimes uh, that were committed uh, will be open, will be kept in the open, and everyone will be punished uh, for their sins that were not confessed. So we'll take a look briefly at atonement in the Old and the New Testament, just a couple of slides. So we know that to atone uh, means to cover or to cancel the sin uh, or to write off the consequences of sin. So that is what was happening in uh, the verses that we read. They were atoning or trying to cover the crime that was committed, uh, which would lead to the, all the people being guilty of that sin. So they were giving atonement. So in Old Testament, we see that the path to atonement uh, is through the sacrifice of the blood. Uh, as we read in Leviticus uh, 17 and 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. But when we come to the New Testament, uh, it is also made very clear that just because uh, you sacrificed uh, animals, uh, it doesn't uh, take away the sins. Uh, it only uh, covers the sin or it covers the consequences of sins, but it doesn't really uh, take away the sins. So when we come to the New Testament, we see that the, the path to atonement uh, is through the sacrifice that was made on the cross uh, by Lord Jesus Christ. So he became uh, the substitute uh, for our sins. So that is the only substitute that we need. So we don't need to keep offering animals for every sin uh, that we commit. We simply claim the blood of Lord Jesus Christ and it covers uh, all of our sins, the past, present and future. And we are also uh, reconciled to God. So Paul writing in Romans uh, 5.16, uh, he reminds us that we have joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom uh, we have received the atonement. And 1 Peter 3.18 uh, also reminds us that Christ once suffered for our sins, the just, which was Lord Jesus Christ, for the unjust, which is all of us, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So we see that uh, in the New Testament, uh, through Lord Jesus Christ, and through the sacrifice that was made at the cross, uh, the sins have been covered, and the sinner is also reconciled to God, or the communion uh, is reestablished, and the sin is uh, also taken away with that one sacrifice, and it gives us the power over sins uh, through that sacrifice. So in the New Testament, we are exhorted that we need to live a life uh, that is sanctified, or we need to be continually uh, pursuing a path of holiness, and holiness uh, is possible through repentance uh, and confession. So we don't need to keep offering animals, but we need to repent uh, of our sins, which is to turn back on our sins and to turn to God. So repentance uh, is more than a regret. So oftentimes we may feel, we may regret what we have done. We may regret the mistakes that we have made or the failures that we have in our life. But the scripture reminds us that we need to repent, which is going one step forward, where we turn back on our sin and we turn to God. Oh. And when we confess, 1 John 1.9 reminds us that uh, he is faithful and just 
uh, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once we make a confession of sins, uh, we see that we get a clean slate and all of those sins that were committed in the past uh, are fully forgiven, they're fully covered. So we are reminded that uh, the sins that we commit must be dealt with uh, immediately and also uh, completely. So that is why we are exhorted every Sunday when we take part in the Lord's table uh, that we need to deal with our unconfessed sin before taking part uh, in the Lord's table. And when we don't uh, confess our sin, uh, it will increase uh, the burden of guilt. And we also expose ourselves uh, to the risk <laughs> of committing uh, more sins. And obviously unconfessed sin uh, also uh, leads to a loss of communion uh, with the Lord. But when we confess our sin, uh, that is where we find uh, true liberty. And that is where we see that all of our burdens of, of guilt that we carry from sin uh, is carried away. So in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 4, uh, the psalmist uh, reminds us uh, nicely that blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And it goes on to say in verse 33, that when I kept silence, or we can interpret it as uh, when we don't confess our sins, uh, my bones waxed old uh, through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. Uh, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. So we see that there are serious uh, consequences uh, when we don't repent and confess of our sins. Uh, it only increases our burden, and it keeps us in continuous bondage. And in verses uh, 10 to 14, uh, we read about uh, how to treat a woman uh, who has been captured uh, during the war. So it's quite possible that during wartime, they might have captured uh, many women, and uh, men might be attracted to uh, some of these women. And in verses 10 to 14, uh, we are given some guidelines uh, in terms of how to deal uh, with that desire or how to treat that woman who has been captured. Okay, so here again, uh, the context is given to us in verse 10 and 11, where they have gone to war and they have brought uh, different women. And one of them is beautiful. And if someone desires her, uh, how she should be dealt with. So when the Israelites were uh, journeying, they would have had many wars. Uh, we talked about this uh, war against seven nations uh, occupying the land of Canaan. Uh, but these would be different wars. These could be smaller uh, conflicts uh, that were either initiated by the Israelites or it could be provoked by the enemies. And we are told that the war has been won because the enemies are taken captive. So the question is uh, how to respond uh, to a beautiful woman uh, that a man uh, desires. So the bottom line is uh, the captive woman, uh, she should be treated uh, with respect. So again, we see that uh, the laws that the Lord is setting in place uh, are very different from what we would see uh, among the heathen nations, where if a woman is captured, uh, she may not be treated with respect. But here the Lord is making it clear that she should be uh, treated with respect. And the way to show that is that uh, 
any relationship, uh, it should culminate uh, in marriage and the woman should not be used uh, to satisfy the lust or passion, uh, which would be temporary, uh, which could be short term. So the Lord is saying, uh, if you're going to have any relationship uh, with the woman, uh, it should be based on a marriage covenant. Uh, it should be based on commitment. And we also see some practical uh, instructions that uh, we see that uh, it doesn't happen uh, immediately. Uh, there is a time that is given about a month uh, before the final uh, decision is made uh, about uh. marriage. So in verse 12, uh, we are told to that the woman should be brought home, uh, which again shows uh, some degree of respect and ownership. Uh, it shows uh, what is the intent uh, in the long term. And we also read in verse 12 that the woman uh, shaves her head, uh, which could be seen as a sign of mourning, or uh, that could be one interpretation. Uh, she also trims her nails, which... Uh, which is not clear why it is done. It could be a cultural thing. And in verse 13, we read, uh, she takes off her garment of captivity. So she's coming into the home of that man, which means uh, she doesn't need to wear the same garments. Uh, he would have given her uh, new garments to show that uh, she is part of that home, uh, at least for that time. And we also see that for a month, uh, she mourns uh, for her parents. So it is uh, reasonable to assume that she is separated uh, from her parents and she is brought alone, uh, being captured uh, in war. And later on in Deuteronomy, we see that when Moses died, uh, there was mourning for one month. So that could be the time frame to mourn for family members uh, that have departed or that have been separated. So after a month, uh, the instruction is given that the man should uh, either marry her or he should uh, set her free. So it's quite possible that after a month, uh, his desires have changed, or maybe he changed his mind, or maybe he found someone else. And if that is the case, uh, he should simply uh, set her free. Uh, she cannot be sold or she cannot be kept uh, as a slave. So here we see that the Lord is giving uh, clear instructions that even though uh, she is a woman who has been captured, uh, she is not a commodity that we can simply use. Uh, she is not a treasure that you have acquired. Uh, she is still a human being who needs to be treated with respect, uh, with, with a plan for commitment and not for lust and passion. So uh, even though the instructions are given, we know that ideally, uh, the Israelites, uh, they should not enter into relationship with any uh, pagan woman, because that means they will also be uh, bringing home uh, all the customs of the pagan nations. But uh, obviously the Israelites, the, they broke that uh, law of separation uh, many times. Uh, so the Lord uh, set some rules in place, uh, set some boundaries so that they don't uh, abuse the heathen women. Uh, especially in the context of war, where they would have more authority and they would have more power to exploit the women. And the next section, which we read from verse 15 to 17, uh, it speaks about uh, polygamy, where the husband uh, remarries. And if that is the case, uh, what happens to the rights 
uh, of the firstborn son uh, whom he might have had uh, from the first wife. And again, polygamy is not in God's perfect will, but again, we see that the guidelines have been given because God knew that the Israelites, uh, they would break the law or they would disobey. And if that is the case, uh, what would be uh, the recommended solution? Yeah. So here again, we see the context uh, in verse five, 15, sorry. Uh, if a man has two wives and then when he's remarrying the second woman and if he has children through them, uh, what happens to the firstborn or what happens to the right of the firstborn son? So uh, here we are reminded that the rights of the firstborn uh, cannot be altered. Uh, even if the firstborn son uh, was born from a wife, uh, that he does not love now, or he never loved, but he had a firstborn through her. But the firstborn will maintain uh, his rights. And as per uh, verse 17, uh, he would get a double portion uh, of the property. And we also see that the firstborn is given leadership role uh, in the family uh, when the father dies uh, in the context. And in Exodus uh, 13, 2, we are also told that the firstborn is like the opener uh, of the womb. Uh, so that's the term that is used. And we also read that the firstborn uh, is sanctified uh, to the Lord. And we saw that in the case of Hannah, when she uh, offered the firstborn to the Lord, uh, Samuel, and the Lord blessed her with more children uh, through that sacrifice. But we also see uh, exceptions uh, where the firstborn were not given double portion. And of course, uh, in today's society, we don't really follow that rule. Uh, when someone dies, uh, they would uh, divide the inheritance uh, generally equally among the children, and the firstborn are not really given the double portion. But we see exceptions uh, even in the Old Testament where Isaac is given preference over Ishmael. And we also read that Esau, he sold his first right uh, to Jacob. So Abraham, before he died, uh, we read in Genesis uh, 25, <laughs> verse 5 through 8, that Abraham gave all that he had uh, unto Isaac. So even though Ishmael was the firstborn uh, through uh, Abraham, even though she was the maidservant, uh, but he was the firstborn through to Abraham, but Isaac received uh, everything that Abraham had, and the rest of the children were given gifts, as we read further. And after that, we see that uh, Abraham died in good old age. And we also see that uh, in the New Testament, uh, the firstborn title uh, is given to Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.15, we read that Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he is the firstborn of every uh, creature. And in Hebrews 1.6, we see he is the first begotten into the world. And in Romans 8.29, we see he is the firstborn among brethren. And in Revelation 1.5, we see uh, he is the first begotten or the first fruit uh, from the dead. And we also see the Israelite uh, in Exodus 4.22, they are also referred to as the firstborn. And in verses uh, 18 through 21, we see uh, how to deal with the son uh, who is uh, rebellious, what is the punishment or what should be the course of action? Yeah. 
Okay, so here again, the context uh, we see in verse 18, uh, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, and it goes on to give uh, what should be the course of action or how we should deal uh, with that uh, situation. And the end result is that the Israel will hear and fear uh, based on the path uh, that we take. So we see that Bible treats uh, disobedience or lack of subjection uh, in very harsh terms. And throughout the scriptures, and even in Deuteronomy, we are reminded that uh, obedience uh, to God, obedience to his commandments, uh, should take the highest uh, priority. And when we disobey God, there are obvious uh, consequences. And in this case, uh, it would be in the context of honoring uh, our parents, which is also one of the Ten Commandments. And when that uh, commandment uh, is broken, uh, it has consequences. And here we see the punishment that is given out. So here the son uh, is uh, defined as someone who's stubborn, <laughs> rebellious, or disobedient. And he is also described as a glutton and a drunkard son. So we can uh, picture that son as someone who's uh, lazy, who's not really working, and who's not really listening uh, to their parents. And he's simply wasting his time uh, eating and drinking. So uh, how to respond uh, in such uh, situations? So obviously the first step uh, is to chasten and discipline in love. And that is what the scripture tells us, uh, even in Psalm 94 and verse 12, that blessed uh, is the man whom the Lord chastens. And again, in Hebrews uh, 12, 6, it reminds us uh, that if the Lord is uh, chastening us, uh, he chastens uh, all of his children, whom he loves. So chastening uh, by the Lord uh, is, uh, can be taken as a blessing. It is also an indication of love. Uh, in the same way, uh, chastening by parents should also be taken as a blessing and taken as a symbol of love. But here, uh, uh, obviously the situation is out of control. So we are given the more extreme uh, solution. So if chastening uh, is not working, the disciplining is not working, then we are told to bring it to the attention of elders. And if the elders uh, investigate and they find that the son is guilty of rebellion, then he is stoned to death. So we see that the punishment uh, that is given for disobedience uh, is the same punishment that was given for murder, uh, which again tells us that uh, disobedience or lack of subjection uh, was taken uh, very seriously uh, during that time, uh, at least based on the commandment that is given. And the goal was uh, by instituting this, uh, it would be a deterrent to other children. So when children see that uh, this is the punishment or this could be the outcome of a continuous uh, rebellion, then obviously they would not do it. So the question is, uh, would a father wish death uh, by stoning uh, for his uh, rebellious son. So we don't see any examples, but to the contrary, uh, when we come to the New Testament, uh, we see that the prodigal son, uh, even though he has gone away from his father's house, and even though he is being rebellious and he's wasting his time and money, the money and resources that the father gave, but the father is still waiting uh, for the son to come back. Uh, with a repentant heart. So we read in Luke 15, 20, 
uh, and he arose, which is the prodigal son, he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, uh, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So we know how that story ended. And that is what we often see, uh, even among the earthly parents, uh, no matter how sinful or how rebellious uh, the children might be, uh, the parents would still be waiting uh, for the children to come back uh, with a repentant heart, uh, because uh, you really cannot take away the love that parents have for their children. And that is what we see uh, even uh, when we picture our Heavenly Father, uh, He is also waiting. So when we are living in sin, uh, as we saw earlier, uh, we need to repent and confess. So just like the prodigal son, uh, we also need to repent and retrace our steps uh, to restore the broken relationship. So the intent uh, is never to stone the son to death, but what we see is that the father is always waiting uh, with hope, with faith, that the son or daughter who has gone astray would come back. And mm -hmm. in 2 Samuel 18.33, we see that uh, David uh, mourned uh, for his rebellious son. So we know that uh, Absalom uh, was against uh, David, but when Absalom died, uh, David was still very sad, uh, as he writes, as we see in 2 Samuel 18.33. And the king was much moved and went up uh, to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God, I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And that is what we see in Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ uh, dying on the cross. Uh, here, David was simply mourning the death of his son. And he is saying that maybe I could have died on his behalf. So even though he was a rebellious son, uh, we still see that David had the heart of a father where he still uh, is mourning for his son. And of course, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he gave his life on the cross uh, for our sins, uh, even though we were rebellious. And again, that shows the heart of a father where the father doesn't really want the son to die or be stoned to death, uh, but the father wants the son to come back and to be reconciled. And the very last section, which is verses 22 to 23, we see uh, about a criminal who's hung on a tree. Okay, so here we see the situation in verse 22, where someone has committed a crime uh, that is uh, worthy of death. So that could be murder, it could be adultery, uh, which is uh, punishable by death. Uh, but we see that there is an additional punishment. Uh, the person who has committed a sin, uh, he has already been put to death. But in addition to that, uh, they are also hung uh, on the tree. So, so hanging on the tree uh, is seen as a public uh, humiliation, and it is also seen as a deterrence uh, to others. Obviously, that person is dead. Uh, he really cannot uh, uh, understand what's going on, but it is a deterrence to others to show that uh, if they commit a crime, then that is how their ending is going to be. Uh, it's going to end in shame, uh, public shame, where everyone can see uh, that they have been uh, not only been killed, but they're also hung uh, publicly on the tree. But the body itself, we read, is removed uh, in the evening and buried. 
uh, again, for practical reasons. Uh, if you leave the body for overnight, then obviously it will start stinking or it may get eaten up by animals and things like that. So also there is, so there is some degree of respect uh, at the end for the dead body. Uh, it is taken out in the evening and then it is buried. Uh, so we see that in Deuteronomy 21, 22, uh, if a man have committed a sin that is worthy of death, then he be put to death and thou hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any ways bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which thy Lord has given for an inheritance. Uh, but we also see in the New Testament that Lord Jesus Christ himself was hung uh, on the cross. And through that uh, death and through that sacrifice, we see that all of humanity was redeemed. So in Acts 10.39, we read, uh, we are witnesses of all things uh, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13, we see Christ has redeemed us uh, from the curse of the law, being, a ma being made a curse for us, uh, for as it is written, uh, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So just like a criminal was hung uh, on the tree for everyone to see uh, and to be put to shame, uh, in the same way we see that Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he was also hung on the tree uh, not for the sins uh, that he committed, but for the sins that we committed, uh, he was put to shame uh, in a very public manner. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, we see that Christ, uh, he became sin for us. He became the substitute for our sins. But we also know that he rose again uh, the third day, uh, conquering death uh, and sin. So in Acts 5.30, it says the God of our fathers, raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. And 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says, O death, uh, where is thy sting? O grave, uh, where is thy victory? So that's a testimony for all of us. Uh, death has lost its sting, and grave uh, is no longer victorious over us. Uh, just like Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, uh, we also would rise again from the dead uh, if we are dead when the Lord returns the second time. So in chapter 21, uh, as we have seen in the previous chapters, uh, they are, we are applying the Ten Commandments uh, to different uh, situations. So in this chapter, we can see uh, at least four commandments. Uh, Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. Uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. So those are the five uh, scenarios that we saw in chapter 21, uh, how to deal with uh, unsolved murder and how to atone uh, for the blood that was shed uh, in the land. And the way it was done is by offering a heifer uh, as a substitute so that the, uh, the entire community uh, is saved from the guilt of that bloodshed. And we also saw uh, what are the guidelines for treating a woman who has been captured captive. So we saw that uh, she should be treated uh, with respect. And we also see there is a one month uh, period. And at the end of the month, uh, she should be either set free 
or the person should marry her, but she cannot be sold or she cannot be kept as a slave uh, in the house. And in verse 15 through 17, we saw that the firstborn son uh, will retain the privileges uh, even if the father remarries and has more children, uh, the firstborn will maintain his right of double portion. And in 18 through 21, we saw that if a son is rebellious, uh, we take him to the elders. And if he is found guilty, uh, he would be stoned to death. Uh, but at the same time, in the New Testament, we see that the heart of a father uh, is a heart of love. Uh, it is not a heart that will send a son to death, but will wait for the son to come back uh, through confession and through repentance. And we saw that Lord Jesus Christ, he hung on the cross, uh, even though he did not commit any crime, but it is through that sacrifice, uh, our sins have been washed and cleansed. And we have been given hope for uh, that we also will rise again, just like he rose from the dead.